Focus on Life. Hello and welcome to Lucas on Life and what a week it's been. News of COVID restrictions being loosened has almost been eclipsed by the ecstasy and then the agony of the Euro final where England, a team known by some as Ingerland, got so close to triumph and then in familiar fashion stumbled at the end as the penalties were missed. And what should have been a time of joy and celebration with, regardless of the result at the final whistle, a fabulous team of outstanding young men who took English football the furthest it's been for 55 years. But now it's been marred by what's been described as a torrent of racial abuse for the brave black players who missed those vital shots. And then we've been sickened by footage of people being attacked by mindless thugs as they left Wembley Stadium. The party turned sour very quickly. Our hearts sank as the English supporters booed the opposing teams whenever they had the ball, and that happened throughout the tournament. And then there was the booing of the players that took the knee at the beginning of the game, which has led to the spat with the Home Secretary, Priti Patel. It's been quite a week. We've seen our culture at its best, its bravest, and at its worst and most cowardly. Now, perhaps you're not a football lover and you've had enough of all the coverage this week, but fear not and don't turn off because I don't really want to talk specifically about the football, but rather share some reflections and lessons that emerge from this last week's event. So, Tonight on Lucas on Life, I'd like to share news of one of the greatest football shots ever taken, and the player was Josie, a pensioner. As we thought about what crowds can do, I'd like to talk about the positive power of the crowd and then bring a challenge to all of us about racism. Some words, some stories that I hope will bring blessing, encouragement and challenge to our lives tonight here on Premier Christian Radio. Here's the found. This is Lucas on the Euros. It was a beautiful shot, the kind of heavenly volley that sends football commentators into verbal overdrive, a punt to launch a brace of slow-motion action replays. The ball rolled gently towards the player, who eyed it nervously at first. Tension crackled in the crowd. Suddenly, as if anointed by genius, the player stepped back on their right heel and performed a perfect kick. Hands outstretched, airplane-like, poise and balance perfect, foot connected perfectly with leather on a deep, solid thud, scooping it up in a bend-it-like Beckham power drive. It was surely sheer soccer poetry. Somewhere in the distance, a huge crowd rose to their feet as one and gave a deafening cheer. The player, lost in the moment, was oblivious to their roar of approval. The minister looked on, staggered. This was most unexpected, for this perfect kick was not performed in a stadium or a park, but in the main meeting hall, the sanctuary, some would call it, of a church in mid-Wales. It was late Sunday evening when it happened. Most of the congregation was enjoying their chatty cuppa-in-hand time, the warm afterglow ritual that caps 10,000 Sunday evening services. The minister watched, 
feeling the pleasurable tired ache that comes when the sun sets on yet another busy Sunday, enjoying the clinking sound of China and the relaxed atmosphere. The service that had just concluded had been a happy time. There had been a refreshing cocktail of laughter and tears and a challenge given that we should think about our faith and not just keep doing the same old things simply because, well, that's what we always do. Grace was in the air. One of the children had been playing with a ball when it happened. The football rolled across the fading carpet to Josie, a sprightly lady of 70, faithful to God and this church for the past 55 years. What would she do? Perhaps a gentle rebuke about the evils of playing soccer in church buildings would be forthcoming. But Josie, Josie was the player. She eyed the ball hungrily, and for a few seconds she was 16 years old again and a member of the local girls' soccer team. She had loved the game dearly. Perhaps she was a local star. And then, as she put it, she got saved. Fraternising with the world as a new Christian was not encouraged and sports were considered worldly. To have continued on the team would have meant violating the prohibitionist doctrine of separation that was preached at that time. And so Josie hung up her soccer boots for the last time and she had not kicked a ball for over half a century. There was no angst, for she was not bitter about her loss. She just turned her back on the game and threw all of her energies into the life of the church. And then that late Sunday night ball appeared before her. As Josie said later, something from the past rose up within me. So she performed a masterful kick. The minister's mouth fell open, first with amazement, and then admiration. I realise now that a lot of things that we were told were sin, they weren't really, she explained later with a warm smile. And as I heard her story, I wondered about the countless Christians that I still meet from time to time, for whom faith has been less than liberating. Too often, I bump into good, kind, sincere believers who are passionately committed to a message of freedom but who have been squeezed into the painful corsets of fear by second-hand unthinking dogma. They are the ones who believe in joy, but are nervous of laughter. It is they who occasionally doubt, as all humans do, but feel like they would be committing a Judas-like act of betrayal if they admitted their struggles in faith. They are those for whom everything in life has to be productive, efficient, and spiritually significant, they have left spontaneity and play and simple down-to-earth fun, like discarded toys of their childhood, rejected now for a stern, almost obsessive discipleship. They need to kick a ball, build a sandcastle, laugh out loud, face their uncertainties, giggle on a Sunday. And so I wonder if perhaps heaven is waiting for the locked-up ones to get a bit more of a life. And when they take those small steps of freedom, heaven notices, and somewhere in the distance, a huge crowd rises to their feet as one and gives a deafening cheer, and the player, lost in the moment, is oblivious to their roar of approval. The man fiddled nervously with his impossibly tight tie. His pristine Sunday morning church attire was slowly strangling him, 
For a long moment, he stood silent, and then, at last, he spoke to me without actually looking at me. His unsmiling face chilled words that should have been warm. I need to thank you for your ministry, Jeff, he whispered hesitantly, apparently studying a fascinating object that hovered three feet above my head. He quickly continued, rushing to qualify his positive comment, perhaps before some blasphemous pride was allowed to take root in me. He continued, but then we give all the glory to the Lord, don't we? I certainly wouldn't want you to get proud, Jeff. I thanked him and so wanted to deliver him not only of his constricting tie, but also of his hesitancy to encourage. I desperately wanted him to know that Christian leaders are far more likely to succumb to despair than to conceit, to feelings of inadequacy rather than superiority, but he quickly fled, leaving me with a sad realisation. In some churches, there's a famine of encouragement, faithful, hard-working souls living in a Faithful, hard-working souls live in a suffocating, desolate atmosphere that pervades when appreciation is rare. Working hard in the hope of a final well-done that will come when all is said and done, as Jesus makes a full appearance, they live shriveled lives in the meantime. Starved of words that might spur them on, they hobble on. The assumption is that serving God should be reward enough, which is quite wrong because the crowd we serve which is quite wrong because the God we serve urges us to encourage one another. His encouragement usually comes through his people. At the end of a week when we've heard so much about the crowd, the booing of the other side when they have the ball, I think it's important for us to remember a positive example of the power of a crowd. Encouragement transforms, energizes and empowers as the glorious Olympics and Paralympics of 2012 repeatedly demonstrated. The crowd back at the Olympics was the ultimate, genuine all-rounder of the Games, remarkably making a huge impact at every event. Commentators chattered back then about the home advantage or the fifth man in the boat that was the crowd. Athletes looked wide-eyed and some openly sobbed as the crowd roared. Some women even sported Wiggins-esque sideburns in support of Sir Bradley. Not a usual fashion choice, but effective nonetheless, as we willed Team GB on to win. The deafening choruses of support acted like adrenaline, urging spent muscles and weary hearts on to greater exploits. A German journalist said that the London crowd deserved a gold medal. Sprinter Marlon Devonish in an anti-doping campaign, announced that the crowd was his only drug. When you have the roar of encouragement that comes from the hearts and throats of thousands, it's not surprising that you surpass yourself. So why was the crowd the X factor that helped so many to medal glory during the 2012 Olympics? More than a wall of noise, surely the crowd met the athlete's primal need that we all share, the need to be noticed and approved of. We want to be seen, and that's not wrong. When Jesus warned the religious barons of his day about doing religious acrobatics in order to be seen, he was rebuking them for haughty pride, for show-and-tell religion, not for the human need to be noticed just because we're there. We never grow out of that need. As children, we crave the eye and encouraging words of a parent as we wobble on our bikes, bring home the chaotic painting or use a toilet successfully. 
And encouragement is the fuel that can lift their heads through the darker days when the valley is filled with shallows. This was poignantly demonstrated at a three-day event, a triathlon of sorts involving incredible physical stamina, steely mental fortitude and emotional staying power. The demands were gargantuan and so a team huddled together the night before the event and their prospects weren't looking good. They were exhausted before they'd even started. And then the next day, the home crowd turned hostile. They switched allegiance, dumped their national hopeful and cheered for a champion from another land instead. Their chant was an ominous betrayal. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify that man. And so, on the mountain of transfiguration, the voice of the great encourager had spoken loud and clear. This is my son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. You can read about it in Matthew 17. That voice had spoken before, just before another battle, this one for 40 days and nights. This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Spurred on by that encouragement, Jesus lived. Urged on by that familiar, encouraging voice, Jesus died. So go ahead, make someone's day. Catch them doing something right. If you're going to a sporting event, cheer and clap for the other team. Hold the booing. Search out the soul who is usually taken for granted. Thank the ticket collector on the train, even if he's shocked because you saw past his function and spied a person. Smile at the traffic warden. Write a note to that Sunday school teacher who's told the big story to countless squirming six-year-olds for decades. Some of them are in their thirties now, but few have come back to thank her. Sometimes she wonders if it's all been worthwhile. Put a dent in the lie that she's tempted by, that it's all been just a waste of time. Win a gold medal as an encourager. And whatever you do, please know how to receive encouragement too. Some Christians go into ultra-panic mode when they're confronted with warm appreciation. A lady approached a minister and thanked him for his sermon, which sent him into a spluttering disclaimer with much pointing to the sky. Don't thank me, madam. No, please. The Lord did it. Give him all the glory. Her reply was insightful, if not terribly encouraging. Well, actually, she said, it wasn't that good. So, tonight we've heard about Josie kicking a ball and stepping out of legalism, and in a week where we've seen the negative power of the crowd, we've reflected on how together we can bring encouragement and strength to others. As we come to the end of tonight's show, let's also allow the current conversation about taking the knee and the curse of racism to come to every one of us as a challenge. Now, I know racism is a complex issue, but tonight I want to offer a simple invitation. Racism can be loud, blunt, abusive, obvious, but it can also be subtle, lingering beneath the surface, disguising itself as quiet superiority or simmering resentment. Ever since the tragic death of George Floyd, the spotlight has been focused on the issue of racism globally. And I believe that as followers of Christ, we should be careful that we don't fall into the deception that racism is everybody else's problem. Rather, we should be asking the Holy Spirit to search our own hearts and root out any elements of prejudice, superiority, and to use an old-fashioned term, racial discrimination. 
Without that heart-searching, football will be anything but a beautiful game and our lives together as a community will be marred by the ugliness that is racism in all its forms. So let's pray with the psalmist. Search my heart, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. I'll see you next week. Join me then. Lucas on Life. 